Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have uh, back with us, it's, it's been a while, but glad to have him back, Marcus Williams. He is the pastor of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church in Hayden, Idaho. Uh, welcome back, Marcus. Thanks, Jason, for having me on again. Uh, it's a, a great pleasure. You recently gave a present, maybe not recently anymore, but you've given a presentation about artificial intelligence, uh, technology, and things like that. And this is always something that seems to be swirling about in the news, especially when some kind of new tech comes uh, on board. And every time something new comes on board, I'm reminded of the first Jurassic Park when uh, Ian Malcolm, the character played by Jeff Goldblum. He's getting this tour of the park and he kind of looks at everyone, particularly um, uh, the, the main character who built the park. And he says, you know, your scientists were so excited that they could, that they never ever stopped to think whether or not they should. And it seems as though, you know, this is also kind of like the real genius type thing where it's all science and no philosophy. And uh, the two are at war together, and we need to, to bring things together. So thinking about AI and thinking about um, new technologies, like w- what are the things that we should consider um, as we see these things rolling out uh, from a particularly Christian philosophical perspective, a biblical perspective, what things do we need to keep in mind? Yeah, it's a good question, <laughs> obviously. And I would agree with the uh, <laughs> the character from Jurassic Park. I've not seen that movie in a long time. But certainly uh, the question of whether or not a thing can be done needs to be subordinated to some kind of ethic, which is the second question, whether or not it ought to be done. Um, the presentation that I gave was not specific to AI, but was a more general consideration of um, tools and man, which of course can include artificial intelligence, which is something like a tool. Um, But, you know, it's under a more general category, or perhaps to some, it might not be under the general category of a tool, but um, I wanted to kind of explore, you know, a tool, let's say in relation to, what we confess about man from the standpoint of the sacred scripture, what is he as a creature and particularly what is his end. And in that discussion, I started out um, making the point that we need to avoid extremes, right? Uh, Everyone, you know, when they address these kind of issues, they always kind of give the qualification. I'm not a Luddite. And I know I gave that kind of qualification (laughs) in my, my presentation. And I'm not so sure that like we should be so ashamed at the possibility of being a Luddite. In any case, that might expose my own bias here. But we shouldn't have what Doug Wilson calls, you know, the kind of attitude of a technophobe or the attitude of a technophile. And I think you mm-hmm. and Andrew Packer actually discussed that portion of his book, Productivity, yeah. is where he makes this. Um, 
in theological terms, we might say we don't want to commit unnecessarily this kind of Manichaean error that imputes wickedness or evil uh, to created things. Uh, but we also don't want to become like overly infatuated with created things, recognizing that um, although they might be neutral in some sense as they sit inanimately, uh, they can be intended for heinous ends, right? And so mm-hmm. um, the second kind of issue that I addressed after just making that kind of general observation was the need to explore the the telos, the teleology, both of man on the one hand, and then likewise also the tools that we develop. Um, yeah. Because that will permit those two kind of questions to interact with each other, mm-hmm. namely what we can do uh, and what we ought to do. Mm-hmm. You get this kind of thing too, don't you? When um, people talk about like what's natural or what's synthetic, um, and the assumption is anything natural is good, or if it's come out of the ground, it's fine. And uh, and on the one hand, I'm I'm, I'm willing to, I guess. Submit to that, but on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, well, what about you know, drugs like psychedelic drugs? Um, their end, their use, has a particular um, evil, which is to escape your feelings or to escape um, your duties, uh, and which you know, other kinds of things aren't aren't like that, and and so we should be careful. You know, not to to be that drunken pens, peasant to say just because it's natural doesn't mean it's perfectly fine. Just because it's synthetic doesn't mean it's perfectly evil, or vice versa. Right. It's the same kind of error I think that people make when they consider like the categories of spirit and flesh in the sacred scripture, where it's like everything that spiritual is good and everything that is of the flesh is evil, and it doesn't account for the fact mm-hmm. that the Son of God assumes a true human nature on the one hand. And that the devil is a spirit on the other and is obviously evil, right? So um, there might be some sense in which we can make general observations and comments that are generally true. But when you drill down into the specifics, um, some of those general observations just sort of fall apart, right? And, right. you know, but as, as we were discussing, you know, before, and there's probably people that will disagree with me about this, but like, I'm not so convinced of the kind of arguments about tools in regard to neutrality. I do think that a consideration of the telos of any given tool is part of an evaluation of whether or not we deem it to be good or evil, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that this is a family-friendly show, so I don't want to be crass in terms of what we were talking about before. But as I said to you, like a sex robot is a tool and I'm not sure of the edifying use of it, right? I mean, it's made for a particular kind of end, and that end is debased. So, you know, it's, and I, and I think that these considerations become more difficult when you start to get this kind of highly mechanized technology, and then beyond that, for lack of a better term, a kind of techie technology in you know, the form of devices, of computers, tablets, phones, and so forth. Because the question of telos, the question of their end, 
it doesn't become as discernible, right? Like if I have a tactile tool, like a hammer or a shovel or something, I can tell you fairly easily what its intended end is for. And if you come upon me using it incorrectly, you can be like, hey, you know, a claw side of a hammer isn't meant to, you know, dig a ditch. (laughs) You're going to be there all day. You look like an idiot or whatever. Um, (laughs) But there isn't necessarily this kind of discernible end with some of these, especially techie pieces of technology. And so I I, I think it makes interaction with, you know, coming to a good understanding of how we should think of them more difficult. Not to say that we should put them aside. Yeah, yeah. So you want to, you kind of want to take an Aristotelian approach then, it sounds, where you can have, um, you can go wrong in four places, right? You can go uh, wrong in the, the stuff that it's made of, its material cause or its efficient cause or its its formal cause or its final cause. That is, its, its um, teleological, its end, the purpose for which it was used. Um, and we could go wrong in any of those four areas and we should consider in all of those areas, the tool in light of those things, I should say. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have a quote in my outline from C.S. Lewis, which I think is quite helpful because I think he uh, wants to posit that discerning the telos of something is really the only possible way of making a sensible judgment of it. Like if I don't know what its end is, then I have a difficult time actually determining much of anything about it. And so he says, this is from his preface to Paradise Lost, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communist may think the same about the cathedral, but such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. Um, mm. Because anything, you know, if you don't if you don't discern their proper end, right, then you're going to be making all sorts of evaluative statements that don't even hit the mark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how you let's say evaluate the the end of a thing also kind of is preconditioned by what sort of worldview you operate with as you make your considerations. And I think that this is where the difficulty with some of these more advanced pieces of technology come into uh, the picture. Because like I said in my presentation, if you ask a Christian, what is the telos of man? And you ask that same question to the Darwinian evolutionist, and you ask that same question to the communist, you're going to get three fundamentally different answers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's like, even even studying the end of a thing, uh, in some sense, requires another kind of lens. (laughs) Because if I think, like a Darwinian evolutionist, that the end of an organic, you know, creature that has sentience or whatever is simply to progenerate its genes, then the most fitting man in a nation is the one who donates his seed to the local seed bank, 
and Mm -hmm. gets as many offspring as possible or whatever. And if I'm a communist, then I think that your end is to serve some collective interest at the expense of your own existence. But the Christian doesn't think like that, right? And so he's going to treat the human person in a different way. And then he's going to treat these questions related to tools and their uses and the making of them hopefully in a different way. So before we even get to what the end is, we have to ask the question, by what standard are we judging that? Right. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, we can, you know, discuss at a certain point, this, uh, this interview with these guys discussing AI, but at various points in the conversation, statements like, yes, bad people will do bad things with this. My immediate thought is, well, who's determining who's bad? Because like it's hate speech in certain countries for Christians to have certain conversations in public because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're bad people, right? And so right. it's like who who's determining what is bad and what is good, right? Like there has to be these kind of foundations laid and worldviews a- actually have to be compared, right? So we have to compare our metaphysic or the question, what is really real with that of, you know, the secular humanist, right? The secular humanist actually thinks what is really real is that a man can become a woman, right? And he wants to use technology in order to actualize this crazy idea that he has. (laughs) And this is preconditioned by a false view that the created world is nothing but raw material that doesn't have any inherent meaning and by my own power or whatever, I'm going to impose some kind of meaning or order on it. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're really coming at these things from two very dissimilar points of view. So like, I'm not going to trust that somebody has judged a thing properly um, when they call it good, unless I know, okay, how exactly did you encapsulate that determination? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so. No, that's good. So, so let's just build from a scriptural lens then for a bit and and talk about like just how Christians in general should view these things without becoming a technophobe or a technophile. What is the end of man? And how should we, um, how should we evaluate tools as they pop up? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, um, fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. And St. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, I think ultimately man's chief end, as St. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, when he refers to the end of faith, and he uses that word, telos, the end of faith, the goal of faith is the salvation of the soul, right? So man's end uh, is to be in an eternal communion with God through the incarnate son who is the propitiation for our sins uh, and who was raised for our justification. Um, And so it being being the case that that is our chief end and then our end on this side of glory is to fear God and to keep his commandments and to do all things to the glory of God. Then when we begin to kind of advance to this question of tools and technology their development and their use, I think their development and their use 
ought to operate within this constraint, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Whether or not it is serviceable, let's say, uh, to what is man's all, which is the fearing of God and the keeping of his commandments, whether or not it glorifies God uh, and so forth like this. And I think, you know, in some general sense, uh, we might say that the end of everything is to glorify God. The end of creation, as the psalmist says, is to declare the glory of God. And the end of tools could be discerned from their opposite use in Genesis 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel, right? The primary sin is that the people were trying to make a name for themselves, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is the opposite of glorifying God, right? And obviously they're disobeying the command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill up the earth. And they're trying to attain heaven by human ingenuity or whatever. Um, So that might be a starting point, right? Is to say that Mm -hmm. everything should be caught up in the glorifying of God and whatever it is that man does Uh, he does as one who bears the image of God and then reflects that image in the world. Um, And so when he interacts with tools and uses them, um, he ought to have this in mind. So it's like, if we, when we press into this question of kind of techie tech or whatever, it's like, okay, they can have good uses, right? It's not, I I don't want to make a case that they're, that they're evil or whatever in themselves, but they should be wielded in a particular kind of way. And I think that that, you know, would be a, would be a good starting point. But, you know, the trouble I I think comes when in Genesis 11, it's, it's actually God who recognizes that man has this kind of limitless potential, um, seeing that they all speak in one language. And he says, Hey, we got to go down and confuse their language because anything that they set their mind to, uh, they will be able to do. And so it says in Genesis 11 and verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So it's like mm-hmm. God is actually, they're not saying that of themselves. Hey, look at us. We have this limitless potential. God is actually saying, hey, whatever they set their mind to, they'll be able to accomplish. And that means that and, and the fact that God frustrates the plan means that man shouldn't simply do whatever it is he can set his mind to. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. So that, you know, so, that's where the kind of ethical question, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, no, no, you're, uh, you're right on track. Um, it, it just brings up a few things for me then. One is the, like, you know, the plundering of the Egyptians and the use of things that were uh, in the hands of evil men and people and nations taking them up for the use of God. And then what does that do for ambition, like godly ambition, um, for striving after things? Uh, how do we not make it be like um, Christians are, are uh, Christians have a, a killjoy for a God? Does that make sense? Um, I think, uh, not the very last statement, Christians have a killjoy for a God. I'm not sure. I, I mean, some some people view the Christian God as just a killjoy, right? He is there to just always frustrate and say, "Don't do this, don't do that," instead of letting them uh, or, or or pressing them into service 
to a good potential. Does that make sense? So, yeah, well, I mean, go ahead. I think that, I mean, obviously this is just a, this is just an error on the part of the one who makes this judgment about God, right? It's like the false idea of thinking that the best kind of potential for man is letting him do whatever he wants to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And this isn't actually the sense that the scriptures give us with respect to the idea of freedom, right? Freedom is always lived within particular constraints. It's not determined by myself, right? Like I live in a maximally free way when I live within particular, a particular set of boundaries. And so to call God a killjoy is another way of saying you want to be God and just simply set your own parameters. And then suddenly you've set up a new standard, which is the maximally good standard, which is the one that sort of removes all kind of boundaries from what man is permitted or whatever to do. But who's to say that that is what is good for man, right? I mean, like, I think that when people run this way, they eventually discover that nature slaps back at them, right? (laughs) Like, you're, you're, you're eventually going to bump up against the fact that you are a limited creature when you persistently live outside of the particular boundaries that God has made for you um, as a creature. It's not to say that you don't have certain potentials, right? Like, again, in, in Genesis 11, God says, nothing will be impossible that they set their minds to. But just because nothing will be impossible for them doesn't mean they need to push into the impossible and do those things which uh, do not accord with the manner in which God has made them. Um, So, you know, it's like any kind of limitation that a father might set for his own children, right? It's not, I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I might be trying to avoid you dying prematurely because I don't want you to play in the street or, you know, light the matches or whatever the case may be, but um, that's actually for your good. So obviously, you know, sinful man in his darkened mind isn't going to interpret it that way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So does that affect how we understand what uh, our ambitions are or should be? Um, How do we maintain, I guess, a a mindset of um, an ambitious mindset within within those constraints, like, so that we don't... um, become a caricature of what people think will happen. Well, when you're talking about ambition, are you meaning like ambition to develop uh, particular kinds of technologies, like ambition in terms of invention or? Yeah. I, I meaning like all of those things, uh, ambition to uh, explore uh, and the ambition to, uh, to dive into uh, developing tools and understanding creation. It seems as though, you know, our past scientists were, it was their Christianity that drove them to look into the creation to see how they, uh, to, to see, to see and learn more about their creator. And that was a good and godly ambition. And what, why is that there seems to be a fear that if we were to, um, look at the the purpose for which we were created and for which all things are created, that this would somehow curtail ambition. 
instead of actually reinvigorating it. Well, it, I mean, it will it will curtail certain kinds of ambition, right? I mean, again, right, this right. is the this this is the question of bringing an ethic to bear on these kind of pursuits, right? So, um, it will it will certainly curtail, or it ought to curtail, the ambition that just says, "Let us go forward because we can do these things," and then the fact that I can do a thing becomes the justification for the doing of it, right? Right. Um, and so you might. Like I remember reading um, Christopher Hitchens' uh, autobiography, Hitch 22, and it seems to me it was like when he was dying of cancer and he was like howling at the moon about the fact that like Christian fundamentalists are curbing the extent to which we can explore stem cell research because they're so insistent on not using, you know, like aborted fetuses in order to advance this technology, right? And it's like, well, sorry, pal, like you don't get to uh, disregard the humanity of these creatures made in the image and likeness of God who retain it in some kind of broad sense, just because you have cancer, and you don't want to have it anymore, right? So like, (laughs) yeah, I'm sorry, that sounds a little harsh. But it's like, here, here's a guy who runs up against his own limitation, right? And runs up to uh, an effect of sin in the world. And it doesn't produce repentance, of course. It produces this kind of vitriol and a further hatred of the God he doesn't believe in. And then an accusation that Christians with their narrowness have stifled human ingenuity. And it's like, right. too bad, right? Like, Human ingenuity, as it turns out, at various times does need to be stifled because you can do horrific and awful things uh, mm-hmm. with your ingenuity, right? So it's just it, it's just a uh, a need to recognize that, like, obviously, okay, when man lives in the world and he brings those particular faculties that he has to bear because he's made in the image and likeness of God. Um, he actually, in some sense, as a as a man, participates in certain attributes that God reveals about himself, right? So like when I read a book or when I do something that engages my mind, as a human creature, I'm participating in that attribute of God called omniscience, but only in the way that I am able to do it, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. have the property of divinity. I don't know all things but I know certain mm-hmm. things and I can engage in the pursuit of knowing things. And the same thing when I live in regard to the law of charity, I'm participating in God's omnibenevolence, but I can't do it perfectly. And I can't do it to the extent that he does because I can't myself die for the sins of the world or whatever. Um, yeah. And when it comes, when it comes to these kind of questions related to technology and human ingenuity, I'm using my I'm using my ingenuity and then also using tools and in that way participating in something like God's omnipotence. He is almighty and all powerful. And I, after all, invent tools in order to extend, you know, my power or my ability, but I should participate in that omnipotence of God in a way that is fitting for what I am, right? Which mm-hmm. is a creature. Um and and just humble myself under the limitations that God has constrained me with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
No, that makes sense. Um, it, it, it's just the reason I brought it up is because often you hear that kind of retort, like you just want us to go back to the stone age or to the dark ages. And, uh, and in some ways, uh, per- perhaps uh, that's right, but not completely right. It's, it's no, we want these to these things uh, as they're developed to be governed by a particular set of standards um, that are in line with who we are as creatures, not as um, sole individuals trying to kind of make our own way and put our stamp and become gods ourselves. Right. Well, and, you know, I think, again, it, it kind of it gets thrusted back upon this question of what is man's end, right? So, like, mm-hmm. if if I discover that the development of particular technologies which dissociate me from the world that God has made me to live in, which is also kind of communicating to me my own smallness, which also contributes to my repentance and so forth, then, you know, I'm going to have a different evaluation of some of these pieces of technology. And like, in some ways, it's it's not clear to me always that just because a piece of technology produces some seeming beneficial end, that the effects of using it aren't in some way negative also that I can't yet perceive. And then those negative uses are in an ultimate way outweighing or outnumbering the positive and beneficial use. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's hard for me to judge some of these things, right? Like, I don't know what would have happened, frankly, if Henry Ford had never invented the Model T. Like, I don't know what it would be like if we had to, you know, be humiliated in a horse and buggy in the middle of 30 degree winter weather or whatever all the time, as opposed to being in a heated car with heated seats and all the, you know, comforts of the modern world. I'm not, I'm not advocating for, you know, impounding your car and going back to horse-drawn buggies, but I'm just saying like, we take it as, um, I think we just assume that because this has made man's life measurably easier or better or something, therefore it's good. And it's like, well, no, sometimes affluence, you know, and the manner in which sin abuses the affluence. And that's the rub, right? It's like, it's not necessarily the affluence. It's not that Solomon can't be given riches by God and so forth. But after all, you know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, has a difficulty balancing prudence and wisdom, repentance and faith with the riches that he has. And that's not God's fault, right? That's owed to his own sinful flesh or whatever the case may be. But it's just, I, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to kind of evaluate these things. I, like, would there be, would there, yeah, I don't know. I I just, I just kind of wrestle with stuff. It's like, you know, I'm glad for modern medicine, but, and we can't like replay. It's not like we can do a thing where we jump in a time machine and play out a different timeline. Like there's only one, right? <laughs> and this is the way that it's kind of unfolding. And so, you know, then I guess we just evaluate it as it is, because it's not like we're going to go back to the Stone Age. Nobody's advocating for that. It's just, you know, trying to determine to what effect, uh, to what end certain of these technologies are affecting 
the lives of Christians for better or for worse. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's just no, I, a trade-off in your, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There is only one timeline. We can't go back. And I'm not sure even if we did, if it would really unfold all that differently. Um, mm-hmm. it, it always, it always seems that, uh, and maybe this is a particular, um, uh, I guess flaw within fallen humanity. It, it, it seems as though Christians are caught flat footed on these things. Is there something that we should be doing then, uh, so that we are better prepared when new things come out? Um, so that, so that we have a standard by which to, to, evaluate and uh, a means by which thinking about these things that doesn't just take for granted the um you know uh, the marketing of the thing yeah i you know i think so um when i did my talk on uh man and tools and creation i read some things from uh romano guardini and although his name sounds Italian, he was actually German, uh, Roman Catholic uh, philosopher. And he was very, very concerned about the rise, not of technology per se, but in particular mechanized technology. And, you know, some of his concerns with respect to the increase of mechanized technology is at least in one case, the manner in which it can make man aloof from the natural world. And, Mm. you know, the example that he uses, he he writes a book called Letters from Lake Como. And the example that he uses in one of the chapters there is like, he's looking out on the lake and he sees the sailboat, you know, going through the lake. And, and he's kind of talking about how it is a, a beautiful piece of technology. Um, and then he contrasts the sailboat with the motorboat. <laughs> and he says, you know, uh, the guy who's riding around in this gas-powered motorboat is so aloof of the things around him because a motorboat can cut through the waves and the wind in a way that the sailboat can't because the sailboat in some sense has to participate with and find some kind of common ground with <laughs> the wind and the waves and and use it in a particular kind of way. So the sailboat as a piece of technology is actually capturing these natural forces and then using them, whereas the motorboat doesn't really, I mean, obviously there's some extent to which even a motorboat is going to get sunk in a storm or something, but like generally speaking on a choppy day, a guy can just sort of cut through the waves and not be so concerned. And it's from that reflection, he says, I think mechanized technology is going to cause us problems. And I think, wow, you know, that's uh, a kind of prescience that we simply don't possess today, you know, because as we might talk about when people evaluate AI, they're like, oh, there's no problem. You know, there's not going to be any dangers associated with them. And I'm like, well, maybe you're right, but I don't know. I have less optimism. And I think that an over analysis is probably better than this kind of naive you know, acceptance of the technophiliac who just says, oh, yes, because we can do it. We love to do it. And so we're going to do it. But this, Mm. you know, this kind of like, so how does a, how does a Christian uh, consider these things? And I, you know, I think like, okay, what is the problem with 
uh, tools or technology making you aloof of the natural world? Well, as I alluded to earlier, the natural world in some way is the is one of the very things that communicates to us our own limitations, right? The example that I used in my presentation from Psalm one uh, was from Psalm one twenty one, where the guy is looking up to the hills, right? He's dwarfed by these mountains, which causes him to ask the question, "From whence comes my help?" Right. So it's like mm-hmm. recognizing his own limitations causes him to cry out in such way that he knows he needs help. But if you can live above or beyond those limitations, then your sense of a dependence upon God who is merciful can be negatively affected, right? And so Mm -hmm. can we naively entrust ourselves to tools and technologies that give us a wrong impression about our own limitations as we're set in this world that God has made? And, you know, I think, well, yeah, of course, like a Christian is, if not critical and examining these things, prone to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, like that might be one thing, you know, the other concern that Gordini has is that mechanized tools will put man in such a position in relation to creation that he's not only aloof of it, but then he exercises this sort of godlike domination of the natural world so that he is in some sort of position of creator or fashioner or former and, you know, obviously that has deleterious effects, which I think, you know, the Tower of Babel is one such example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I, I guess it's just, it's, it's, a, it's like a mindfulness, right? Just being aware that, you know, the Christian, as I've said in the past, should be a critical examiner of all things. Like, he, he should wonder to himself, what does the, you know, like, <laughs> one time I said uh, to my mother-in-law, uh, when my wife was visiting uh, home, they took my kids to um, one of these indoor, like bouncy house places. And I said, I wonder what it means like for this present generation and like the way that the modern man thinks that we've created a indoor padded playroom instead of just like telling kids to climb trees. And <laughs> uh, And she said, maybe you're overthinking. And I said, yeah, I probably am. But nevertheless, like um, I should maybe critic, like, is that a reflection of our softness or our inability to like, you know, (laughs) bear under things and so forth? Like, well, maybe, I don't know. Um, So along with this discussion of mindfulness, it it seems like there's also a, a side of it that requires some kind of discipline, some kind of... Uh, measure of uh, enacting, well, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to say like, um, well, I'll just say uh, enacting constraints on usage um, so that you can be in contact with the natural or created world uh, in the way that God intended you to be in contact with it. Uh, to what extent does that does that play out? And, and how should Christians then try to uh, th- think through that kind of discipline in enacting it in their own lives and, and households? Well, I yeah, I mean, I think it's probably going to differ from person to person, right? Like everybody has to, through self-examination, understand, you know, what they can and cannot handle, 
you know, so like it, but it's, it, it, sometimes it's hard, right? Because the, you know, when we think about some of these pieces of techie tech, I mean, without secrecy, you know, the developers of these devices and these apps and so forth are just out and out saying, we are trying to make them maximally addictive. And this is perhaps for a separate kind of consideration, but, you know, you have this concept of the attention economy where, Mm -hmm. you know, these companies and these developers of these devices have, have found a way to monetize attention. And so they want to make their devices and the various things that go on these devices maximally addictive so that the sponsors that put ads and so forth on these devices can actually make money on your addiction. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, understanding probably with regard to these particular things that the developers of them in certain instances are malintended. I mean, I don't think that there's any two ways about it. Like you hear stories all the time of people on the ground floor of the development of some of these pieces of technology saying, I got out because I saw what they were doing, right? And I just couldn't conscientiously continue uh, to mm-hmm. participate in developing things that captivate people's attention to such an extent that they remain plugged in for as long as possible. Because the longer they stay plugged in, the more we can monetize their attention. And so probably, again, this goes back to mindfulness, but just like being aware that that's what they're doing um, and then figuring out what kind of a person you are. But I think you and I could probably both admit that being relatively aware of these things, we nevertheless don't do what we ought. (laughs) You know, in other words, it's like we're all saying, oh, we're all addicted to these things. And then we just continue to remain in habits and patterns because I think they have a more powerful effect than we can even really understand. Right. Um, And it has to do with, you know, dopamine receptors and all this other stuff, you know, but there, there is this kind of really um, let's say malintended purpose uh, to keeping people plugged into these things, you know? So it's like, you know, I understand, you know, when Doug Wilson, for example, in his book, Productivity says, well, I have a bunch of servants on this device, right? I have 10,000 servants and I just need to put them to use. And it's like, okay, that's fine, right? Like, that's good. If you can do that, hey, God be praised and I'm glad you can do it. But I'd say a lot of people can't do it. You know, a lot of people are using certain of these things in ways that are not supportive of Christian habits and virtue and so forth. So... I don't want to say the only solution is to avoid them, but for some people that might actually be the answer. Yeah. So it, in what way then does like discussion with your pastor, say one-on-one and helping, like asking your pastor to help you examine yourself, how does this, what part does that play in all of this? Because I mean, self-examination is difficult and you have to learn how to do it. And you often need a guide. So where where does that come in, in terms of going to um, someone like a pastor to say, um, I need help looking at, looking, at, looking at how I spend my time, looking at how I use these tools uh, so, that, so that I can get my life back or so that I 
am not controlled by these tools uh, and am able to use them according to their proper ends. Right. Well, I mean, oftentimes um, (laughs) a lot of pastors need help with this, frankly, (laughs) you know? I mean, yes. that's true, right? Like, I, uh, y- you've been talking about these things, I think, and uh, David Peterson has been talking about these things. Um, and so, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you go about seeking these kind of pieces of counsel from your pastor? I mean, don't be so sure that your pastor doesn't need to be seeking out counsel for himself. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. Maybe that's just kind of a gratuitous uh, <laughs> observation here, but it is true, right? That a lot of pastors themselves are enduring these very things, and mm-hmm. I think it's just like you know, so, so the you know, pastors themselves have to learn um, how it is we might uh, you know see time and the giving of it as a gift, right? It's you know, like Paul says, to redeem the time for the days are evil. And, you know, redeeming time just means, let's say, seeing how it should be caught up into those things which are above, right? Like, how do, how do we make best use of our time in service to the glory of God, right? Who mm-hmm. we should fear and whose commandments we should do because this is our all. But, you know, like G.H. Um, Gerberding in his book, The Lutheran Pastor, right? And this is before... <laughs> all of our modern technologies, he says, learn to value time, time of which eternity is made up, should be reverenced. Much precious time is wasted, not by idleness alone, but by lack of a system. Let there be regular study hours. So there he's giving advice to pastors in terms of how do you even organize yourself? And that that's probably the first two parts. It's like to reverence time, right? To see that, you know, God is apportioning the time for you, not that it might be squandered, but that it might be used well. And then, you know, the the comment about a system is helpful as well, right? Because this goes back to, you know, the constraints in which we live. We often hear of limitations and constraints and we interpret them negatively, right? Like, well, you're just trying to put me in a straight jacket. But when you set limit, and I think we've all experienced this, right? Like if you set for yourself a kind of schedule for the day, yeah, you are set within certain limits. You are doing things at particular points of the day, but you're actually doing more overall than if you just say, well, I'm going to freely live my day out today. That usually kind of translates to accomplishing not very many things. Um, and so, yeah, like having having some kind of idea as to how will I order my days and seeing, you know, the manner in which some of these things can get in the way and stifle, um, you know, cause the very things that are supposed to theoretically make our life clip along at a better pace are often the very things that we're using to fail to get things done. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, and it's not, it's not like, you know, it, it's not like life is just this like, press to get things done or, you know, like, uh, we're not, we're not just machines that are measured by our output or something. Right. So I don't want people to get the wrong impression that we should be thinking of ourselves in these kind of utilitarian terms or pragmatic terms. Um, but that being said, there are things in our day that we must need to do and things that God has, 
uh, afforded for us and apportioned to us and that we should, you know, figure out how to do in such a way that we're not, you know, squandering what he's actually given and Mm -hmm. to what extent, you know, certain of these pieces of technology do that and so forth. You know, it's something to, to be mindful of. Right. Um, And whether or not, you know, like one of the other observations that I've kind of considered is the way that um, certain, especially mechanized tools and techie pieces of technology can often atrophy the very um, parts of us that they are also meaning to extend. So like the example that I used in my talk was like, if I use a tactile tool, like a shovel to dig a ditch, um, it also benefits me in this way that it strengthens kind of my whole upper body and even my lower body, right? It helps my hands to be stronger, my shoulders to be stronger and so forth like this. And it doesn't necessarily have this atrophying effect, but Theoretically, I could be, you know, morbidly obese and operate a backhoe. And the extent that I use that mechanized piece of technology, it can atrophy me even further. It can, it can actually make me weaker because it is, it is actually, it's not just an adjunct to my body, but it's actually replacing a lot of the functions that a shovel wouldn't replace. You know, the shovel actually requires my body as an adjunct to a greater extent than the backhoe does. And then when I apply this to, you know, techie tech, right, the the thing that it is extending is my mind, right? Uh, theoretically, through mm-hmm. Google or whatever the case may be. But at the same time, it's extending it. It's also atrophying it. It's also, in some sense, making it weaker. It's making it so that I can't attend to things as readily, that I can't remember things as readily, that I can't, you know, memorize things as readily. And so, you know, like being mindful of that too, it's like, yes, these things can have their ready use, but in in the using of them, there can also be this kind of negative reciprocation, right? Where, where the thing that is extending some part of you in the using of it is actually at the same time weakening that same part that it's extending, if that makes sense. And, you know. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. So kind of to, um, you know, I, I had sent you something from the Andrew Huberman podcast where they were discussing um, AI and, uh, and, you know, whether to be afraid of it or whether to embrace it. Um, when you were listening to that or, or, or watching it, um, I, what kind of attitude towards um, technology and advancement did you see? Did you see a kind of a technophile, a technophobe, or uh, you know a combination? What kind of came out? What kind of attitude? Well, at least the parts that I watched, um, the guest that he had on was this Mark Anderson. And if I recall from the beginning of the podcast, he works in Silicon Valley. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And develops certain AI systems and so forth like this. And I mean, I would say that Mark Anderson probably represents this kind of technophiliac. (laughs) Um, He did, you know, I mean, it's not to say that he didn't talk about possible dangers and so forth from artificial intelligence, but I think he was let's say more optimistic than 
a lot of people are when they consider how these technologies might be used. And so, you know, I think he he has more confidence in artificial intelligence than I think is warranted because after all, we actually were in the middle of an experiment, right? So mm-hmm. I can't necessarily, like, I remember when some of these things first started coming out and they were like, oh, it's going to be like, you know, five years or whatever before this thing can even do certain of these functions. And then that was like in a matter of months, it was doing the things that they projected it wasn't going to be able to do for years and years and years down the road. <laughs> so, right. you know, that that kind of tells me that you you actually don't know exactly what the potential of this thing is. So for there to be an over amount of confidence in the dangers that we won't run into or that it doesn't present, I think is simply uncalled for. And it's it kind of smacks of a kind of hubris, right? A kind of pride, um, which goes before destruction. <laughs> right? So like... Yeah. Uh, you know, I so I think he I, I think the Andrew Huberman perhaps was not as given to this kind of not to say he wasn't optimistic, but like the one section that I watched uh, was at the hour forty seven minute mark, and when they start talking about the fears of AI, uh, the guest was like, "Well, this is just a freak out that's driven by the elites," and he's like. The average man walking on the street doesn't really think about these things. He's not really concerned about them. And it's like, well, I don't think that's true. Like here we are having conversations and we're the furthest thing from an elite, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul says that pastors are considered the refuse of the world. So let's count ourselves as the least elite, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, who could be considering this particular issue. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so we are. That's right. Um, you know, uh, so so he makes this observation that like, well, this is only an elite driven freak out. And then what I thought was ironic was he immediately went on to extol artificial intelligence as a thinking technology, which in time will develop machines that can do the thinking for you. And I'm like, well, that sounds like what all the elites say about what they're doing for us. <laughs> so there's like, so there's this like kind of irony that the development of these things sans what the elites might think is kind mm-hmm. of setting up this elite system that is going to maybe maybe it enhances the way that human beings can think. Maybe in Mark mm-hmm. Anderson's view, we'll simply do uh, our thinking for us. And he takes this as a good. He just says a lot of good can come from this. And yeah. I, I think that I think that that's an assumption, right? To go back to this mm-hmm. atrophying effect that mechanized or tech, techie technology can have on the very parts of us that they aim to extend. Like yeah. if a machine is doing your thinking for you, I mean, what is that going to do to your mind, right? Yeah. Um, the and one of the things that kind of really resonated with me is the the kind of if you can't beat them, join them type of attitude which is, look, this isn't going anywhere. Like, it's not going away. It is here, and it's here to stay, and it's going to continue to develop. So it's kind of like, we're, we're past the point of talking about weather. It's here, so then let's just get past the talking about weather and talk about what and how. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, on the one hand, I kind of think like, 
yes, this is kind of how it goes with technology. Um, but I'm not quite ready to give up the should the the, the weather conversation. Um, what do you think about that? You're not. Are you setting that up as a hypothetical, or are you saying you're not ready to give up the weather or not? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not ready to give up on the weather or not conversation. But at the same time, there's a part of me that kind of thinks, "Look, it's here. It's not going anywhere. What's the point of arguing about weather, whether or not to use it?" Right. Um, well, I guess because like the Christian always has to contend with these things, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it. You, you, we, I, I guess we just we don't resolve we don't reserve the right to sort of take a passive appropriation of the things that are set before us, right? Like so, um, you know, we might not be able to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. He did mention like right. some governments in Europe trying to basically outlaw all artificial intelligence and so forth. So I suppose in theory it might be possible to. St- stifle it. I think at the very least, the brakes ought to be pumped with respect to how these things are being used. Because, you know, like um, Anderson himself, you know, said, when he starts to talk about the concerns that people have with AI, um, again, he starts with this confidence. And he says, well, people are afraid that it's going to be destructive to society, because it can generate deep fakes and it can generate AI generated images and it can maybe tamper with our economy. And he's like, it's not going to do any of that. And I'm like, well, it already is doing that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we already have examples of men who are in love with AI generated women that don't exist. And on the other side of that AI generated woman is probably another man. Right. So like, don't say that it's not already having a deleterious effect on society we have examples of where these things are leading people off the rails, right? And as far as it goes with deep fakes and AI-generated images, whether or not those become convincing and whether or not we can develop tools that will you know, successfully suss out whether something is a deep fake or an AI-generated image, the fact that it's a possibility is the problem, right? Because you've already, in some sense, put the suspicion in the water, and so then you're constantly wondering, uh, what is this like? Is this a thing that is actually the case or not? You know, so like the question of whether or not, um, I do think it's, I, I do think it is kind of this inevitable thing because the people who have their hand on the development of technology now are innovating without the question that we started with at the beginning of the podcast. That is whether or not we ought to do this. Like that mm-hmm. kind of question has been jettisoned from this kind of mm-hmm. particular discussion. And I just think like we we definitely should not jettison the question uh, just because these things are now on offer and available, but continue to uh, make certain considerations of what the dangers are. And likewise also consider like, you know, these, these things are pieces of technology, but like they are being made use of by human beings, right? So like they have biases built into them. They can alter people's perceptions of the way things are. Like I've seen videos of people interact with chat GBT and ask a question like, is Donald Trump a good president? And chat GBT says, I do not engage in political opinions. And then asked, 
is Joe Biden a good president? Or write me an essay about why Joe Biden is a good president. And then it just starts spitting out all of these things positively about Joe Biden. And the same question mm-hmm. with regard to child transitions and stuff like this, where it's like it gives a positive acclaim to transitioning children, um, but it doesn't really want to speak on or at least admit there are any dangers in doing that. Right. So, like, I just, you know, I don't want to sound like a Luddite, you know, but it's like, <laughs> I'm just not. I'm just not so convinced that uh, that we should be overconfident about yeah. the the numbers of non problems that some of these things have the potential to to put you know to force upon us. And again, you know, um, you know, when Mark Anderson is talking about machines, like the one discussion that I thought was helpful was when Huberman was saying that the artificial intelligence is very efficient at data analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, I mean, we already have computer programs that analyze data, right? Um, and we already have things that make, you know, developing even the writing of a sermon quicker, like a, a keyboard on a laptop is presumably more efficient than a typewriter or something. Um, so like efficiency in that regard or analysis and so forth, I think, well, yeah, I could see the the reasonable goodness in developing technologies that make the scanning of medical documents or whatever go quicker. Um, but, you know, his guest's response was like, well, not, they're not only good at, da- you know, data analysis, they're also better at empathy and bedside manners. And then he starts talking about how, you know, AI is infinitely patient, infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely sympathetic. And then suddenly it starts sounding like it's taking on qualities of divinity. Um, yeah. And for these people, I think it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Have, yeah. Have, have you read A Canticle for Leibowitz? No. No, it's a, a, it's a post-apocalyptic um uh, science fiction novel by Walter Miller Jr. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of about how, you know, man keeps on making the same mistakes with ter- uh, with regard to science and technology. Um, so it's, it's during this, it, it's set after like nuclear holocaust and um, they've lost almost everything uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, science, but the monasteries still have lots of books. And so there's still some science. And so the monasteries give these books to scientists and they end up doing the same damn thing and blowing everything up. <laughs> so they they all have to leave the planet because they got to go to Mars and colonize it because, because they just blow the whole thing up again uh, through uh, nuclear annihilation. Anyway, it's uh, it's a sad it's a sad take on humanity, but interesting nevertheless. If you're in for a, a novel like that, right? Well, I mean, obviously that presents kind of a negative outlook on <laughs> the development <laughs> of technology and so forth. And I don't know. Again, I don't necessarily that we want to go down that route, but there is, I think, a need to recognize that although, again, God even recognizes man's ability to set his mind to something and to do it, that doesn't, that isn't the permission to do it, right? And so I just, you know, I think then our use of certain things that are developed, 
we have to be critical in our examination of them. But again, to go back to the, you know, the beginning of the podcast, like it's hard to discern what the telos of some of these things are. Like, is the telos of AI to generate, you know, images of, you know, Donald Trump eating a hot dog? Because that's like what people are doing with it. Or is yeah. it to use it to write your sermon, like to have ChatGBT just do your sermon for you or your, you know, your term paper? Like, I mean, it has su- it has such a wide variety of applications that it just like it becomes in terms of a tool, it almost it doesn't have a character of a tool. It has this kind of limitless potential. And the people that are talking about these things, again, are talking about them with quasi-divine uh, characteristics. I mean, if you watch mm-hmm. that interview with Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson, Elon Musk said that one of the guys who's developing AI said, we're trying to create a god. You know, <laughs> it's like, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I it's just, I, we, we should be discerning, therefore, because the people who are developing these things clearly do not have the same worldview that we do do not have the same valuation of what is good and what proper ends for man are, and therefore are developing things in some kind of arbitrary subjective way and saying, well, it's good because it's, it can do this thing that I myself have decided is good. Mm, Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so we, we just kind of set ourselves up uh, for Dane, you know, for falling into a pit, you know, if we're, if we're just not keeping an, an eye on some of this stuff. Yeah. But I'm not an expert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we do live in the age of experts and, uh, I don't know that they've helped us necessarily, uh, <laughs> you know, along in, in that regard. Sometimes it's, yeah. uh, common sense that, that needs to guide us. And, and this is something that, everyone has has been given whether we use it or not is a different question yeah right well thanks for your time marcus uh this was a great conversation uh so glad that uh you've you know taken up this talk topic at least to to begin to to think about it and wrestle with it so that you know christians as they live out their callings from god can uh, benefit from the analysis that uh, uh, that you've at least kind of outlined here for us in terms of mindfulness, uh, discipline, uh, and then uh, just asking the question, what are these things for? And if you can't distinguish what its purpose, its end, its goal is, its, its telos, um, then maybe we should pump the brakes. So thanks again. Yeah, you bet. And thanks for letting me talk. So it was great.